Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Genesis 1 that we read last week and thought about um, declares the beauty of God's creation of this, our common home that we share with tons of other creatures of his hand. And uh, it does so with a poem. Genesis 1 is a beautiful constructed poem and tells us the theology of creation, what it means to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And that's followed up in Genesis chapter 2, a poem in the first chapter, with a story in the second chapter. And I want to read a portion of that story of creation in Genesis 2, beginning with verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. We often quote 1 John 4, 6. It's a familiar verse. It simply says, God is love. We talked about this some last week, but I want to drill a little deeper today and think about uh, what it has to say about our relationship to creation. God is love. That doesn't just mean that God loves us. That's something that's written into the gospel story all over the place. We have learned John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world so much he gave his son. And we hear from Paul that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us is expressed in the gift of his son and his redemption of our lives. But to say that God is love is more than to say that God loves. It is to say that's God's very nature. That is who God is. And he's, God has been that way from all eternity before there ever was a universe. God is love. That sort of helps us understand that mysterious thing about God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three, yet one, because it means that forever God, who is love, had to have someone to love. And it was this pure, unadulterated, powerful love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity past that is at the essence of who God is. Now, it follows from that, that God is love, that God can do nothing that is not an act of love, that God always acts in love, that everything God does is an expression of his love. I, I don't think God can even do anything neutral. It, whatever God does, whatever God says, God is acting out of who God is. 
It is an act of love. How could God, who is love, ever act unlovingly? Now, we considered last week the connection between that statement. God is love. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and affirmed that everything God created, everything that God has created is an expression of God's love. We are surrounded by evidence for and exhibits of the love of God. The very act of creation is an example of love. So the soil, the air, the water, the plants, uh, the animals, the things that are visible and invisible, the sun, the moon, the stars, all the stars in our Milky Way galaxy, all the galaxies that permeate the universe, all the dark matter that scientists tell us exist, all the molecules and atoms and subatomic particles, all of those things that are part of this physical universe that God has created, all of that is an expression of the love of God. We are surrounded in creation in every piece of it with the, the affirmation that God is love and that God loves us. It's built into the fabric of creation. And I think it would be fair to conclude as well, and this is where we take another step forward, that the God who creates out of love also loves what he creates that the universe is something that God loves dearly. He has made it with his own power and out of his own brilliance, and that he loves it. He has affection for it. He cares for it. Now, we've often sort of assumed that um, maybe God just sort of created things and then let it go and said, there it is. But I think we need to think differently about that. God, who is love, loves what God has created, and he takes great joy in it. It's at this point that Christian people over many centuries have often gone astray. We have assumed wrongly that creation is somehow for us, that God did all of this for us, and that we are the center of things, and that we can use it, exploit it, abuse it, do whatever we want to with it. God has gifted it to us, and that's the end of the story. Um, in 1967, stick with me on this part, okay? In 1967, uh, a professor at Princeton University named Ben White wrote an article, a professional article, and it received a lot of attention. It's still quoted often. In this, he was a medieval historian. He studied how thinkers, you know, things people studied back in the Middle Ages. And he, he said that the current Christian belief, well, the Christian belief that originated back in the Middle Ages has continued till now that says that creation is for us. And it's because of that, he said, that we face, it's Christian's fault that we face an ecological crisis in our world. Now, um, I want to take some issue with him, but listen to what he says. It has some weight. He said, our science and technology have grown out of Christian attitudes toward man's relation to nature, which are almost universally held not only by Christians and neo-Christians, but also by those who fondly consider themselves post-Christians. Hence, we shall continue to have a worsening ecologic crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason to exist save to serve man. Now, 
White is probably correct that that's what many Christians have believed over the ages, and they've believed it wrongly. What he is wrong is calling it a Christian axiom, a Christian belief, because that is not what Scripture teaches. The Bible does not teach that God created the world for us. It does not teach that the whole natural order has no reason to exist except to serve us. We have been the ones, not just Christians, people have been the ones who have taken this into, uh, into our selfishness and have believed this and have exploited it. We have done a tremendous amount of damage. I want to try to straighten that out a little bit for a bit. Biblical answer to the question of how are human beings related to this creation is different, different from what Lynn White, White expressed. According to Scripture, creation is not for us. It is for God. We're going to take that up a little more next week in some detail, but hear this. There's this vision in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, beautiful four and five, beautiful vision of John being admitted and being admitted into the throne. And there is God sitting on the throne, and there to his, to his land was slain. And surrounding him are the fires, the fires of the Holy Spirit. And uh, around him are these uh, 12, 12 elders that represent all the redeemed people of God. And there's also this strange being here in that vision. It's a real strange vision, but called the four living creatures that have wings and faces and fly about the throne of God. Pray, what a mighty, what a mighty to the heavenly cheerleaders. Every time they appear in the book of Revelation, all heaven breaks into praise. And so the four, and so the four living creatures, all of creation, are flying around the throne of God. And here's what they are singing. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. All of creation sings before the one on the throne, saying, you made everything that is, and you made it for your pleasure, and it was for you. That's what a biblical response is. Creation is not for us. It's for God. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 1 when he's describing uh, the role that Christ played in the beginnings of all of creation. He said the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And listen, all things have been created through him and for him. Creation is not for us. Creation is for God. We were included in the creation that is for God as an expression of God's love. The creation is God's loving gift of a home, common home, not just for us, but for the 850 other million species that inhabit the planet and the millions of others that have over time. It is a gift to us in that sense, but it, it was not for us. It is for God. And God takes pleasure in the creation, and God finds joy in it. I want you to think about this for a minute. I, depending on how your understanding of God developed over years, you may have pictured God as some fairly angry fellow sitting on a throne somewhere just looking for someone to step out of line so he can zap them or slap them down or make them feel guilty. That's not a biblical picture of God, by the way, but it is not an uncommon one in our world. 
One of the writers whose thinking has helped me a, a lot with thinking about what it means to live as a Christian in the kingdom of God is a fellow named Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard portrays biblically God as the most joyful being in the world. Do you ever think about God being joyful, being happy? That joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Joy is something that arises from God himself and that God is full of joy and takes great joy in his creation. That's part of what we mean when we say it's for God is God takes joy in all that he's made. Dallas Willard said, all the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and riches. You've stood maybe on the edge of the Grand Canyon and thought how beautiful that is. God experiences that all the time. And not only that, he experiences billions of stars that are part of the galaxy that we live in. He experiences the billions of galaxies across the universe. He experiences the depths of the ocean and the heights of the mountains all the time. We get a little droplet of it occasionally, and it makes our hearts sing with joy. But God lives in that kind of joy. Dallas Willard tells that he was one time traveling in South Africa, and he uh, came over a rise in Port Elizabeth, and saw this vista layout before him of mountains and the beaches and the ocean, and it sort of took his breath away. And he said, words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that seemed hardly of this earth. Gradually, there crept, crept into my mind the realization that God sees all this all the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. This and billions of other scenes like and unlike it in this and billions of other worlds, great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through God's being. Do you ever think about God as just joyful at this creation that he's made? Uh, we spend a lot of money uh, trying to imitate little bits of that. I mean, we can go buy an aquarium and fill it with just the right kind of salt water, buy a bunch of little colorful tropical fish to swim around, and we look at them and watch them swim by, and we're just amazed. And God sees the Great Barrier Reefs and all of the beautiful undersea life all the time, and we're watching little fish swim by in a tank. I remember being so um, really overwhelmed way back in the 1980s when the first Star Wars movie came out and I saw the special effects. They were like nothing I'd ever seen before. Now they look pretty cheesy, but they were amazing back then. But think of how we are moved by special effects on, on movies or video games. And God sees the entire universe all the time. And if some physicists are right, this isn't the only universe. So he, all of that is his. He made it for his glory and for his joy. Um, God witnesses things like this. The um, Eagle Nebula is one of the things that has been looked at closely, first with the Hubble telescope and now the James Webb telescope. It's described like this by an astrophysicist. It is clouds of gas and microscopic dust reaching six trillion miles top to bottom, 
hundreds of stars emerging here and there in it, hotter and larger than our sun. A writer described it as towering clouds of gases, trillions of miles high, backlit by nuclear fires and newly forming stars, galaxies cartwheeling into collision and sending explosive shock waves boiling through millions of light years of time and space. God enjoys the show with a front seat ticket, and he says it's very good. You ever been uh, moved at a fireworks display? <laughs> Poof. <laughs> and God's watching this. Creation is not for us. It's for God. Uh, our place is different. If it's not for us, then what is our place in creation, we human beings? Which, by the way, God watches with joy as well, I think. Well, the stories of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 offer two images. They're things we can stick in our head and carry around with us to help us remember what our role and responsibility is here on this, in this world. The first image that it speaks to us is, in, is that of royalty, that we are like queens and kings representing God, placed on this earth to rule over it in God's place. We are image bearers is the term that's used. Uh, Genesis 1 and verse 28 says this, God said, let us make humankind in our image, our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The image of God has been understood in a lot of different ways by theologians over the years, but the, what it probably means in its context in Genesis 1 is tied to this idea of royalty. In the ancient Near Eastern world where the people of Israel lived and uh, as they talked about their world, so did their neighbors. And it was a common understanding in the ancient Near Eastern world that the king or queen or the pharaoh in the case of Egypt, that the king or queen, that physical person ruling over their kingdom was a representation of the people's God. Pharaoh, for example, was considered to be almost an incarnation of Ra, the sun god, uh, that the king was an image of their God. And here comes this biblical truth where God says, it's not just the king who is an image of God. Human beings are the images of the one true God. All of us are image bearers. Even in ancient Israel, when a new king was coronated, crowned, uh, one of the songs they used to sing at that coronation ceremony was Psalm chapter 2, in which God says to the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Later, those very words are used when Jesus is baptized. But there was the idea that the king, even in Israel, was considered to be a special representation of God. But here in Genesis 1, all human beings are created in the image of God, meaning we are those who represent God here on earth. And we're to rule, it says, like kings and queens, over all the cre rest of creation. Now, that doesn't mean what Lynn White said it meant. It doesn't mean we can do whatever we well please with it. What it means is we're to rule as God himself would rule. We are representatives of God. We bear the image of God in the midst of creation. We're authorized to rule over the creatures of the earth, but that's not an absolute authority. We rule as God would rule this creation that he loves and takes joy in. We do it 
with the same kind of love and compassion and attention and responsibility that God himself would take. When Israel's king would come to the throne, the king representing God was supposed to rule over the people in just that way. Psalm 78 says that the king is supposed to rule with the justice of God and the compassion of God and the mercy of God because he is there in God's stead ruling over the people. And in the same sort of way, you and I, image bearers of God, are called to rule over creation as God, God himself would rule, protecting it, not destroying it, exploiting it, or abusing it, but with justice and compassion and care. We're God's royal representative. So the first image to carry around, if we want to understand our, our relationship to this beautiful creation, is to think of ourselves with a crown on our heads and a scepter in our hands. And it is our responsibility to rule and to reign as God himself would, because we bear the image of God. But there's a second, more sort of humble image that Scripture gives us in chapter 2 that helps us understand that relationship. It's um, the claim there in chapter 2 of Genesis is that we are to be like farmers who care for the soil and the garden so that it can continue to remain fruitful and beautiful. That's Genesis uh, 2.15. Uh, the earth is described there in Genesis 2 as a beautiful, fruitful garden with everything growing in it that human beings could possibly need. And God creates a human in his image and puts him in the garden and says, I want you to take care of this place. Verse 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. You'll find translations render those two verbs differently. But the first one, to work it, the word literally is to serve it. And when it's applied to uh, farmers and soil serving it, it's tra usually translated till it or work it or, or work with it. But the idea at the root of it is we are there to serve it. And the second is to keep it, to take care of it. Keep is a familiar biblical word. Um, Cain will say uh, to God sarcastically when asked about his brother Abel, am I my brother's keeper? Am I one responsible for my brother? The answer to that question was, yes, you are, but uh, Cain was trying to avoid that. The Lord himself is called in the Psalms the keeper of Israel. He is the keeper of his people. He watches over, he protects, he cares for, he knows about. And those are the two tasks that are given to us as farmers in this garden called earth. We are to uh, serve it and take care of it, keep it, protect it. That's our charge. It wasn't given just to some people. It's given to all of us. It doesn't mean we're supposed to be farmers, but it is an affirmation of our intimate connection to this earth that we have responsibility for. Think of this. When the scripture tells the story of God creating the man, he's later named Adam. The Hebrew word is Adam. Adam is made from the dust of the ground. That word, the dust of the ground, is Adama. Adam comes from Adama. We would say it in English maybe as humans come from humus, the soil. Or we could say God creates a soul from the soil. Either way, those words just tell us that we're intimately connected with this earth that we are given to live on. It's not just like you buy a new home and move in. We, we are connected with this place. Out of that same soil from which we are formed comes every bite of food we will ever eat in our entire life is connected soil. Even seafood is connected to the soil. It, we are connected in this intimate way. And so we're told, you need to take care of the place. 
creation is for God and for his glory. It's not for us. So according to his plan of creation, human beings are part of creation, not apart from creation. And our special responsibility is to care for it. We are placed in charge in the way that no other creature is placed in charge. And it is ours not to exploit, not to dominate, but to rule over lovingly, justly, with care and affection. We are farmers called to work with the creation, to serve it, and to watch it carefully. Nothing in any of that suggests that, in the slightest, that it is ours to ignore, to exploit, to abuse, or to destroy. Now, let me say this. It doesn't really matter, as far as the biblical truth is concerned, it doesn't really matter what you believe about climate change or ecological crises or, or whatever you believe. If you believe, along with the vast majority of scientists, that we are currently in an ecological crisis largely caused by human behavior over the past 150 or so years, if you believe that, or if you believe that the whole idea of climate change is a hoax perpetrated on us by the Chinese government, I don't care which end of the spectrum you're on or where in the middle you are. That doesn't change the biblical truth that says you are the image bearers of God. We are the image bearers of God. We've been placed in this place and charged with the responsibility to rule over it as God would rule over it, to tend it and to care it as God would. That's our responsibility. You may believe that there is an imminent ecological crisis and last summer was uh, somehow connected to that. Or you may believe, no, it's just phases we're going through and there's no ecological crisis. It doesn't really matter. The biblical truth stays the same. We don't need an ecological crisis to understand that it is our responsibility to live as God's image and as God's farmers in the midst of this beautiful garden that he has given us that we call earth. He's charged us with treating it as he would. Um, it means, among other things, taking responsibility for our lifestyles, for our consumption, for our greed. Um, we can't save the planet. Don't try that. It's that's too abstract. But you can take responsibility for where you live and what you do and how you live. We can try to learn to walk a little more lightly on it so that we leave it in a little less damage, as little damage as possible to those that will come after us. We can love our neighbors, who are not only our physical neighbors right now, but who are future generations who are our neighbors. We can love them as ourselves by learning to limit ourselves and to live more sustainably. Now, if you want 10 items to do to live more sustainably, I'm not going to give you those, okay? Google it. You'll find 400 things you can do. Choose a few of those. Adjust life to that. That's one way of living more responsibly. My, mine is to tell you why we should do it. And the why is because we are not apart from creation. We are a part of it. Because it is created for God's glory and out of God's love. Because we were created in the image of God to rule over it as God himself would rule over it. Because we have been charged as those placed in the midst of this beautiful garden to serve it and to protect it and to keep it. It is ours to watch over and care for even as we draw our life from it. That's why we don't look at creation and worship creation. We look at creation and we see the love of God and we worship the creator. And creation is where we live all of the time and we have so much opportunity to let it point us toward God and it should. And uh, we, for our part, want to learn to live in it as responsibly as possible.
because we are followers of Jesus and because we believe in biblical truth, not because of a political party association, none of that, all because of this book, because of what God has said about what creation is and who he is as creator and who we are as his creation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, we are your creatures, humbly formed of dust, but gloriously created in your image. We are here, we understand, to represent your royal rule and your affectionate care for all that you've made. We ask you to forgive us whenever we've thought that this realm we were called to steward somehow belonged to us because it doesn't. Forgive us when we've mistreated that which you love. Forgive us when we've chosen selfishly, disregarding our neighbors and their needs. Forgive us for forgetting to keep watch and to keep the garden that is earth. We ask for your help, Lord. Help us to walk obediently to take on our royal role of benevolently ruling over your earth, to take on our affection and careful role of watching over the garden that you've given us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.